want to read from Matthew 28. I think it will become apparent why I'm reading from this familiar passage, beginning in verse 16. And then I'm going to pick up from where we left off last Sunday evening and hope to finish at a decent time, so that way if there's any questions regarding this subject, we can deal with some of them. So, Matthew 28, beginning in in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to take the gospel to all the nations, to take the gospel to all of the world. We believe that. We believe that as part of who we are as our DNA. This is the mission of the church. It defines what we do, is that our mission is defined by what Jesus commands of us of taking the gospel and making disciples, seeing them baptized. Well, that's not peculiar to Baptist. That's what every denomination should believe, including Pentecostals. And so I want to draw this a point from this. We looked last week at the birth of Pentecostalism. And it really started with a man by the name of Charles Parham and a woman by the name of Agnes Osmond, who believed that they had gotten the gift of the Spirit. And if you remember correctly, the whole entire doctrine rests on a certain understanding of the baptism of the Spirit. They believe that it's subsequent to salvation. So you get saved, and then later on, at a later point, you get the baptism of the Spirit. That was their theology. That was a Wesleyan Methodist theology, and Parham, who was a Wesleyan, picked up on that theology and applied it to the charismatic Scene. Well, Parham had a student by the name of William J. Seymour, and he possibly is the most important person in, in this puzzle that we try to put together of this history. And it was in 1906 that Seymour led what became known as the Azusa Street Revival. Has anyone ever heard of the Azusa Street Revival? It's, it's in California, in Azusa, California. It's probably one of the most significant moments uh, of the last over 100 years in church history. And at this point, Seymour was leading a Bible study. He got kicked out of their church building. He ends up on Azusa Street with a crowd of people. And they have the start of what was becomes the, known as the Pentecostal movement. Uh, Seymour initially was a student of Parham. So he's picking up the theology of Charles Parham, who had this idea of a second or subsequent uh, spirit baptism after salvation. And so Seymour gets to California, and as he arrives, he starts a series of prayer meetings. 
that grew to the point of needing a building to meet. And this small group started their prayer meetings in 312 Azusa Street. And now in this meeting place, the congregants experienced the second blessing of the Spirit with subsequent expressions of speaking in tongues and healings. Uh, it was a, a radical atmosphere. In fact, Parham came to visit Seymour and remarked that it was out of control. So this is in 1906. So you can almost imagine what you would think in the maybe something like Bethel and Reading. And you see how it gets crazy if you watch those YouTube videos. We, we would imagine something like that. But there's something very interesting about it. Seymour is an African-American. And the congregation is mixed group of people. So what does that say it was, was happening? Barriers were being broken as a result of this. That led to some of the credibility in the minds of a lot of people. Because we would say breaking those barriers is a good thing, right? Absolutely. And so it gives a part of just the part of the history and how history looks back on Seymour. They don't, in the history, in, depending on the circle, will look back on Seymour as really as a hero and an influential person, particularly in black history, but also in the church for breaking barriers. What's often ignored is that out of this birthed the movement that we now face today. They started sending missionaries from Azusa Street to Africa, Mexico, Canada, Europe, the Middle East, and Russia, making it one of the most influential exporters of charismatic theology. Joel Beakey writes on this movement out of the 1906 Azusa Street uh, revival. Joel Beakey writes, this is what took place. Listen carefully to this. Trinitarian Pentecostal churches, such as the Assemblies of God, were birthed out of it. So I, I, I note this, Trinitarian. So that means Assemblies of God would believe in the same doctrine of God as we do. They would believe in being justified by faith alone as we do. I'm not saying that if someone's an Assembly of God member that they're not in the kingdom. I think they have some messed up theology. But what also was birthed out of this was what was known as Beaky goes on to say, the anti-Trinitarian movement of oneness Pentecostalism. Now, what is oneness Pentecostalism? Well, it's anti-Trinitarian. It does not believe in the triune God, that there is one God in being three persons. Exist. They don't believe that. What a oneness Pentecostal would believe is that you have God the Father at points, and then God the Father manifests himself as God the Son, and then at other points there's God the Spirit. But there's not three persons, there's three manifestations of the persons at different points in time. That's heresy. That's something we would have to outright reject as being not Christian. So, do ideas have consequences? Absolutely. Ideas have consequences. And what was the consequences of this? I give three consequences of Seymour's work. The missionary effort of the charismatic movement beyond Azusa Street went to the entire known world. 
So in other words, there's not a quarter of the world that you will not find in some area, in some continent, charismatic theology. Either in the Trinitarian or anti-Trinitarian vein. Why? Well, Seymour took very seriously Jesus' words. Go into all nations, make disciples, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so because they took that seriously, they took Jesus' command of mission seriously, and you take Jesus' command of mission seriously, but you do it with poor theology, what are you taking to other places? Poor theology. You have the birth of, out of Seymour, Oneness Pentecostalism. One of the largest churches in Stockton is a Oneness Pentecostal church. In fact, one of the pastors there, uh, we often will meet on our morning trip to Pete's Coffee. Uh, very charismatic, intelligent man. Uh, but it's a very influential church in our own area. That stems from 1906, Azusa Street. There's a third thing, and that is the birth of the Assemblies of God. Now, I, I say this is a consequence. One of the consequences, I'm not necessarily going, oh, this is horrible, but I just want to read their statement of faith, which was written in 1914. So you go 1906, and you just go a few years later, you're not even a decade away, and you have the birth of the Assemblies of God, and this is what they stay in their confessional faith, of their doctrine and confession. This is the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and I'm reading directly from what they, their statement. All believers are entitled to and should ardently expect and earnestly seek the promise of the Father, the baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire, according to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the normal experience of all in the early Christian church. With it comes the endowment of power for life and service, the bestowment of the gifts and their uses in the work of ministry. Now, in some sense, there's a lot there that you could say amen to. But it goes on. This experience is distinct from and subsequent to the experience of the new birth. What's that rooted in? That's rooted in Wesley's theology. Now listen to how they spell this out. So that's important. They say it's distinct and subsequent. With the baptism in the Holy Spirit comes such experience as an, over, as an overflowing fullness of the Spirit, a deepened reverence for God, an intensified consecration to God and dedication to His work, and a more active love for Christ and for His Word and for the lost. Now go back to our very first opening session we did on this of the gift of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. We said the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer is doing all of those things, right? But they go on to define the initial act, physical evidence of the baptism of, in the Holy Spirit. And this is point eight in their confession of faith. The baptism of believers in the Holy Spirit is witnessed by the initial physical sign of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives them utterance. So now, let's just say for a second, I, 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 
someone witnesses to me. I'm, I'm a lost person. They witness to me and they tell me about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say, I want that. And I receive Christ and I'm trusting in Christ. And I go to church and then I'm told, unless you do this, there's something wrong with you. You're a second-class Christian. Or you might not even be saved. What does that do for my faith? You see the danger of imposing upon Scripture a doctrine that does not arise from Scripture. They go on to say the speaking in tongues in this instance is the same in essence as the gift of tongues, but is different in purpose and use. Now let me just ask you a question that we have to all wrestle with. If I receive this gift and I start practicing that, According to this doctrine, I'm crediting the work of the Spirit in my life doing something, am I not? How many, and, and in fact, I, I, I had a friend that was, came out of the charismatic movement, and he's now a cessationist, and he told me that they would say things to get themselves going, to start speaking in tongues. I think about this. If there's a whole mass of people doing this same thing, and they're saying that's the work of the Holy Spirit, that's a dangerous thing to say, isn't it? Say, this is the work of the Spirit in my life when it's not the work of the Spirit. Some would go as far as to say that that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So, is this a dangerous doctrine? Yeah, absolutely. And it's terrifying for a believer because they know that what they're doing is not a true work of the Spirit. And they begin to believe it and say that that's the Spirit. That becomes the expectation. Their whole entire assurance of salvation then rests on something that's not real. This was the birth of the charismatic movement. So what began with Charles Parham led to Seymour and his massive influence in the spread of aberrant theology. The historical connection to anti-Trinitarian movements coming from Seymour demonstrate the lack of theological precision that came from this group. And it's a lesson for us is that there are consequences for bad theology, and often those consequences lay far beyond what we could ever imagine. But this also teaches us the impact that world missions has on the church. Is there a reason for us to go and share the gospel and train pastors wherever we can do it? Yes, because all of the Seymours of the world are going to do it too. And so we need to be about that. So why should we support world missions? Why should we train pastors? Because they need to be discipled with correct do doctrine. Now this movement from 1906, we just go across the pond for a moment. There was a man named Smith Wigglesworth. I'm going to give you the dates, and I'm going to go quickly here. Smith Wigglesworth lived from 1859 to 1947. He's one of the pioneers in the present-day understanding of the charismatic gift of healing. His gift was healing. 
And, and I, I, I got this order of these people from um, Costi Hinn's book called Defining Deception. And Costi Hinn is the, the nephew of Benny Hinn, uh, who came out of that movement. And he said that in the movement, they refer to these men that I'm and men and women that I'm going to refer to as the generals. They refer to them as the generals. So Smith, Smith Wigglesworth. Let me tell you what he was known for. He was known for often violently attacking those seeking healing. Saying in a sermon titled, Gifts of Healings and Miracles, he writes this, or he preached this, quote, There are sometimes when you pray for the sick, and you are apparently rough. But you're not dealing with the person. You're dealing with the satanic forces that are binding the person. Your heart is full of love and compassion to all, but you are moved to a holy anger as you see the place the devil has taken in the body of the sick one, and you deal with this, his position with a real forcefulness. So this is a guy that would go and punch people in the stomach. If that sounds familiar, that practice has been picked up by some of the modern-day so-called faith healers. Todd Bentley is one that has done this, where he has kicked people, has hit people. Well, that came from Smith Wigglesworth. Now, what's Smith Wigglesworth's rationalization for this? Well, it's a satanic force, so it's okay for me to hit this person. Now, if that sounds bizarre, it should. If you go, who would buy that? We should question who would buy that. But people do. They sell out stadiums. He also believed everyone should and can be healed. And he said the real reason for sickness and afflicted people was because of their own sin and lack of faith. So what does that do to the heart of a person that's truly sick? And it's a faithful servant of the Lord. And someone like Smith Wigglesworth says, it's because you're a sinner, you lack faith. They ignore the fact of what Christ said when the disciples said in John 9, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. This was so that the glory of God might be known. In the same sermon, he said the following, where people are in sickness, you find frequently that they are dense about the Scripture. I think there's one person that's dense about the Scripture in this quote. I move to the next section, which is the birth of the modern-day rock star preachers. How many of you are familiar with Amy Simple McPherson? She was born in 1890 and died in uh, 1944. She was the founder of the Four Square Denomination, and in her own era was world famous. In fact, one book said she was more famous than Babe Ruth. She was known for her faith-healing crusades. Her productions were massive and designed to create a sense of awe in the audience. She pioneered media during her time in order to get maximum attention. She would go as far as claiming healing for anyone that touched their radio. Sound familiar? That's a common ploy today that you will see uh, preachers on TBN do. Touch your TV screen and you'll be healed. Like Wigglesworth's violence, McPherson's methods for healing would be emulated by future faith healers. Then we come to Catherine Coleman. Now we're moving closer to, to our time. She was 1907 to 1976. Has anyone heard of Catherine Coleman? Massively famous during her period of time. Like McPherson, she rose to heights of fame that enabled her to pack out stadiums for a chance to be healed. 
A study, though, was done on McPherson's claim to have healed numerous people by a man by Dr. William Nolan. He wrote an entire book on these type of claims. He attended one of Coleman's crusades to observe it, the spectacle himself, and after receiving Coleman's permission, he investigated her and, and had an interview with her. He investigated 25 claimed healings, and he discovered that not one person had been healed. Not one. But yet, she's packing out stadiums with, with, with people that, that are desperate. And I can't emphasize this enough. These are people created in God's image that are desperate to be healed. And they have someone that's charismatic, that, that seems intelligent, and is, is promising that they'll be healed if they have enough faith. And when they're not healed, well, it's because you don't have enough faith. Dr. Nolan said, uh, uh, directed the whole idea about how you'll see someone in these healings of Coleman where they would be seemingly sick and would get up and run or something like that. And his conclusion was this, is that the power of suggestion is truly powerful. In the moment, adrenaline and all of those things, but when they would further investigate the people, none of them would be healed. In fact, many of them he interviewed that were dying of cancer died within weeks and months. We next move into someone that, that is massively influenced, and even though he's now passed, his influence is still felt, and that's Oral Roberts. You probably have heard of Oral Roberts University, which is a major school. Oral Roberts lived from 1918 to 2009, and he's probably contributed to the modern-day prosperity message more than any other figure. And his famous slogan was Seed of Faith, to plant that seed of faith. It made Roberts a multimillionaire, by the way. He is world-famous as a health and wealth preacher. His son Richard describes the seed of faith this way. He defines what a seed of faith is. He says, quote, Seed of faith is a term my father, Oral Roberts, used to refer to our giving to God as a seed we sow and not a debt we owe. God has a plan for your needs to be met. When you sow your seed, give your resources, you can expect that God sees your giving and will multiply back to you what he has given, just as he promises in his word. So plant a seed. What's that? Well, it would go something like this, as if you were sitting in a, a health and wealth church, the preacher would say, look, you need to give money to the church. You need to give money to the church because if you give, that's planting a seed. And if you plant that seed of giving money to the church, that's going to, to expand and be fruitful and it's going to multiply in your own life. Well, that seed of faith only multiplies in one person's bank account, and it isn't the person sitting in the pew. It's the people that are buying book, or, uh, planes and buying cars and mansions and living off of people that think if they will give this money, they will themselves become wealthy. The theology of seed of faith not only misunderstands the scripture, but it also ignores the historical reality that the apostles themselves were not reality. And throughout church history, often the most pious ministers experienced impoverished circumstances. Did you know Jonathan Edwards, America's greatest theologian, oftentimes couldn't afford paper? Let that sink in. 
This moves into what we call the second wave. That's the emergence of this charismatic movement into other areas. It particularly goes into mainline denominations. There was a key figure named Dennis Bennett, who was an Episcopal priest here in California. And he experienced the special baptism of the Spirit resulting in, in tongues. And he proclaimed this before his congregation. News spread to several major news outlets. It was in all of the, the big magazines in, at the time. And he then went and moved to Portland where he continued to minister to thousands of people. So the reason I, I mentioned this guy is because we started off at Azusa. We go into the world, and you have pockets of this that would look like assemblies of God or four square or some sort of Pentecostal. Well, now what we see with De Dennis Bennett, it's moved into the Episcopalian church. So we're seeing that it's moving beyond just its own quarters. In 1967... You have the charismatic movement that takes place in Catholicism. And this event is considered the beginning of the Catholic charismatic renewal, as it led to charismatic experiences within the Catholic Church itself. So there's an entire charismatic wing of Catholicism that, that embraces charismatic theology. You move then into the third wave, is where we move today. This is through the 1970s and beyond, although some historians are now saying there's a fourth wave that's taking place, but I, I couldn't describe that. I, I think that it's safe to say, at least if we're not in the third wave, what they would call the third wave, we're, we're at the end of it. But it's where it begins to spread to various denominations and becomes a global phenomenon. Charismatic churches and ministries, often independent or non-denominational, are emerged and thrived, are drawing large congregations. Uh, I think I mentioned this before, is that 20, 30 years ago, you would not have found a charismatic person, charismatic theology in the Southern Baptist Convention. You will now. Uh, it wasn't present except for maybe in a few little circles. And, and there's a couple of reasons why it has. I think, I think the biggest reason is Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. And then I also think the influence of um, Henry Blackaby and experiencing God opened the door to it in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so as a result of that, you have it now in the largest convention of churches in the world. Now, not all. There's many... Um, guys like myself that would, would reject that. Now, the charismatic movement continues to evolve, though, and adapt within various Christian denominations and remains this, this prominent force in modern Christianity. It's called today the New Apostolic Reformation. And the latest manifestation of this movement, the most well-known leaders, would be Bill Johnson, Rick Joyner, Benny Hinn, and others. Now, I want to focus for a second on Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson's in Bethel, in Redding, California. And if you, have, has everyone heard of Bill Johnson? You've heard his music. The music that came out of Bethel is the most popular music in, Christian, in the Christian circles today. 
So think about this. Why don't we sing that song on K-Love that all the other churches are singing that are really popular? Well, there's a good chance that it comes out of Bethel. And if it comes out of Bethel, even if the lyrics are good, what's behind the lyrics is bad. We have to be careful what we listen to. Sometimes it's more subtle to listen to what's called Christian music and more dangerous to listen to something that is called Christian music than it is to listen to secular music. You already know what the secular music is teaching you. It's a subtle danger. And Bill Johnson has positioned himself to probably be one of the most influential people, I think, in, in the future of this movement. There was a practice, and you can go on YouTube, and it will come up if you go on YouTube and you type in grave sucking or grave soaking. <clears throat> it's a practice where people out of Bethel, out of one of their schools, will go to um, a, 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 a graveyard and they'll go to famous Christians, say they'll go to Smith Wigglesworth or someone like that, and they'll lay on their, on their, um, on their grave site and they're trying to get something. And you might think, well, what's, what's the biblical justification for that? Well, possible justification in their mind could be 2 Kings 13.21. We read this, And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now, you could see how very easily that passage could be twisted to fit an aberrant theology. And that's exactly what they do. Under Johnson's leadership, Bethel has opened five schools. Beginning with children through adults, Bethel offers, scare quotes, degrees in supernatural and the supernatural in arts and technology and music and in their their, their adolescent school. Already Bethel has inroads to popular culture through the music of Jesus culture. But however, with these graduates, their schools, it is likely that in the coming generations, the influence of Bethel will be experienced in all areas of society. Just one time Google the connection between some of the Hollywood stars and Hillsong. Now, Hillsong and Bethel are not the same, but they both hold to a... a, a um, a, theology, a charismatic theology. And so to think that, oh, this wouldn't be in popular culture too, it's already in popular culture. So, what do we do? I started off with the Great Commission that we need to go and share the gospel with all nations. Um, but there's a couple of things just specifically with this that I, I've reflected on. If you go back to when we started this, looking at historical claims of charismatic movements. If you're ever engaging a person that holds to a charismatic theology, and I'm sure we all have friends that hold to charismatic theology, and they will lay hold of historical claims and say it's always happened throughout church history. And so since it's always happened throughout church history, it's never ceased. Well, if that was true, that's actually a, a pretty good argument. 
However, we have to actually exegete the historical witnesses that we see. For example, Irenaeus was one of the early church fathers. He wrote concerning the dead being raised. Irenaeus did, who was after the time of the apostles. Irenaeus was a great theologian and one of the church fathers. So if Irenaeus is speaking of the dead being raised, shouldn't we say, wait, what was Irenaeus seeing? He's respected. Was he lying? Well, B.B. Warfield, tremendous theologian of yesteryears, he wrote a book on, on the supernatural miracles. He writes this, the, that, that the language of Irenaeus doesn't point to actually people being raised from the dead during Irenaeus' time, but Irenaeus was actually referring to New Testament examples and not contemporary to his time. Now, I give this example to say this. When you hear a historical claim to something, don't dismiss it, but actually search it out and see what was going on in that historical claim. Because you might find out that they were totally wrong, as the claim with Irenaeus. There's also another thing is this. Do not be afraid to listen to arguments for charismatic theology, whether it is on exegetical grounds or historical. I think one of the best cases for, for the continuation of gifts, actually, is right here, and I'm going to read it to you is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love never ends, as for prophecies they will pass away, as for tongues they will cease, as for knowledge it will pass away. Now you might think, oh, that sounds like these things are going to cease. They will. But this is what Paul says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Well, the perfect coming is the coming of Christ and his kingdom ushered in. That's actually a strong argument for continuation of the gifts. I think it's the strongest argument they have. I think it's the wrong view of that. But we should take seriously what the Scripture says and wrestle with it. We should learn what the person is saying and attempt to understand their argument. When you study another person's theology... We should always study it to understand what they believe rather than study it for the purpose of tearing it down. But we typically, and all of us are, I'm guilty of this, is to study it to tear it down rather than study it to say, what is that person actually saying? We should learn their position and even in conversation re-articulate it to make sure we understand it right. We have to learn their common arguments. We have to learn the passages of Scripture. We have to learn the historical examples that may be used to argue for a continuation of the gifts. We should familiarize ourselves with those things. You think about the, what's at stake for this. Maybe for a person that's caught in it, it's a matter of assurance of faith. It could be a matter of assurance of faith. For others, it could be a matter of life and death, right? And also this, and this is my third thing, I, I, is be careful to not just purely dismiss a person or go on the offensive in these arguments and discussions, but rather seek to ask questions that would lead a person to further clarify or even question the position they're, they're holding. And what I mean by this is, 
Um, if you have friends that are caught in that movement, they're going to inevitably have experiences that they're going to rest their their theology upon those experiences. Um, ask them what they mean by that. Someone one time came and told me that uh, someone had died and a light showed up to them and a light was floating around. He didn't know what the light was, but the light was comforting him. Now, the first thing I could have said is like, that's crazy. No light appeared to you. Where do you see that in Scripture? That could have been the response. And that was actually what I had to refrain from saying. But after you get to talking for a while you, and start to have them describe it, they realize that maybe what it is that they thought they saw wasn't maybe really there. So when a person claims one of these things, let's say, for instance, a person claims that God spoke to them, you can just simply ask this. What do you mean by that, that God spoke to you? Did you hear his voice? What did his voice sound like? What do you mean by God spoke to you? And from that, you're taking seriously what they mean. You didn't discount their experience, even if you think that their experience is not true. But actually, you open the door for further conversation rather than slamming it shut by dismissing it. Because if you're dismissed, what happens? You shut down almost immediately. And so it's from an apologetic standpoint, I think these three things we need to think about is we need to assess historical claims. We need to not be afraid of listening to arguments, counter to arguments that we hold. And then we also, when we're dealing with people, remember, we're dealing with people that are created in God's image and they needed to be treated as such. Any questions on this subject? Okay, I answered it all for you. (laughs) Part of it. I taught way more here than I did in Uganda, yeah. Where do you draw the line at, Rob? I mean, you get to a point to where you're going to get into a slippery slope if you start opening your mind and your heart to what they're believing, they're thinking. What do you finally say now is enough you walk away from? Great question. Uh, I don't know that I have the 